following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome this morning. Glad that you're with us here at the church and online as well. We welcome those of you that are visiting from afar on the computer and those who have come from close and are in the building today. Hope that you will feel comfortable. We're trying to make it as comfortable as possible here in the building. And also, for those of you online, we had a little um, problem with the audio, as some of you might have noticed over the last weeks. And I think we fixed that earlier, or uh, yeah, early last week. So you should be experiencing the, uh, hopefully, the benefit of that this hour and last hour. And uh, had to do some wiring fixes, so we got that all done. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah, please. And our reading will be in Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress. Now listen, what he's saying here is that nobody's going to escape the judgment. It doesn't matter how high or how low you are on the socioeconomic scale. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases. The noise of the jubilant ends. The joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There's a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, desolation is left, and the gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. Now, that's speaking of the remnant who survive the judgment of God in the first 12 verses. This judgment, we believe, is poured out during the tribulation, which is detailed in Revelation 6 through 19. So this is a far future judgment to the time of Isaiah. But there's a remnant who will be left like the gleaning of grapes or the shaking of an olive tree. Once the tree is picked, 
you know, and then you, you can shake the tree and the last few little fruits come down from there. That's what the remnant is, referring to people under the figure of, a, of an agricultural metaphor. Verse 14, they shall lift up their voice, they shall sing. For the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light. The name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs. Glory to the righteous. I'm going to pause there in the middle of 16 because what that is is the the remnant who are saved uh, by God through the tribulation and see the end imminently coming that, that God is going to be vindicated, that they will be vindicated. They're happy. And so they're singing to God. But the rest around them are not so happy. And then Isaiah uh, pipes in and says, But I said, I am ruined. Ruined. Woe is me. Why is he saying that? Because he's having to tell of all these terrible things that are going to happen to the people. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. It's like, you know, you you can run, but you can't hide. Anywhere you go, it's going to be calamity. And after you get out of that calamity, it'll be another calamity. Judgment time will be so bad. For the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. That's why we understand this to be a future uh, reference here because the Lord will reign in Zion and Jerusalem refers to the millennial kingdom after the tribulation. So a very interesting chapter indeed. All right, I'm going to invite Naomi if she'll come and share with us her minister of music, O Wondrous Love. Naomi.
that's come to dwell in me. Lord, who am I that I should come to know your tender voice assuring me your wondrous love will never let me go. Shall we pray? 
our God and Father in heaven, it's evident that there are some who have been born with certain abilities and gifts that you have given to them and to be used in your service. And our sister, my dear wife, has one of those gifts born to serve you that way, and we thank you for that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of God, that love of God which will not release us, which is greater far than tongue or pen can tell, that love of God which, of which the breadth and depth and length and height we cannot explain or express. But Lord, we can pray to know more of it, and I pray that we will, as I pray also that we know more of the grace of God, that we would not count the grace of God as something stingily given, but it's a magnanimous, it is beyond measure, ready to receive the penitent sinner, whether for the very first time and to bring regeneration or for the umpteenth time when a believer comes again to the throne to confess our sin. And so we thank you, Father, for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. Today, Lord, I'm mindful to pray for the Scarfo family, for Susan especially, as she had to yesterday attend at the service and burial of her brother. And Lord, thank you for the testimony that she shared that the people there were believers in Christ. What a difference that makes. There's no closed door in any hearts to hear the word of the gospel. I pray that in each, indeed in each and every one of those hearts that were present yesterday at that remembrance service, that they all are believers, and that not only that, but they were improved, they were, they were encouraged, they were comforted in the things of God because of what happened. And Lord, we pray for that extended family. Lord, I also want to pray for those that are not well right now, not even limited to those in our sphere of uh, connection, but those who are sitting or lying in their hospital beds at St. Joe down the road or, or up the other way at the University of Michigan, who have some affliction, or like our one brother who has a problem with the, a nerve in his neck. Lord, I pray that you would encourage these ones right now, that you'd raise some up to good health and send them back uh, to their homes or to their normal course of activities. Please, God, give them peace and comfort and some respite from the difficulties. We've been asked to pray for Jansen's aunt, for his mom's sister who is so afflicted with cancer. Our God, we pray that you'd bring to her and her husband and family clarity, comfort, courage, help as they face this battle together. O Lord, we call to you for your help. We pray, Lord, for 
one particular pastor, Mike Harding, who's still recovering, hopes to be back in his church and his pulpit in two weeks. Lord, would you make that possible for him? But if not, we will not slacken in our thanksgiving because you have done and allowed, permitted a wonderful thing. You have, it seems, granted, as with Job, Satan to have a free reign over him, except you said, don't take his life. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray today, finally, for those that are physically fine, but spiritually unwell. Those who are not walking with Christ, that they would know that that is the case, that they would not be deceiving themselves. That, Lord, those who are not walking in the path of holiness and the way of righteousness, that, God, they would come back to that way. They know the way, but their feet are not found upon it. Lord, can you work by your Spirit? Well, we know you can. Would you? Perhaps there are some names bouncing around in our minds now, collectively as a church. Please take those and put them on your target list of work for the Spirit of God to change their minds, to change their wills, to change their hearts, to walk closely after you. May they draw near to God and find and know the joy of God drawing near to them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14, please. If you're not accustomed to our uh, style of ministry here, uh, it may be difficult to get yourself kind of up for or motivated to listen to a lengthy exposition on a section of Scripture, but I really hope that uh, through the course of time, Uh, such motivation becomes less necessary uh, because you understand that this is God's Word. And because it's God's Word, it, it demands and invites our full attention to it in all of its parts. And so just because we're not in, you know, the, the, the best, uh, how can I say, action part of the Bible or something like that, we need to learn what is here. It's very important for us in God's estimation Now, we've already addressed the subject of uh, tongues several times in our expositions in chapters 12, 13, and the first section of chapter 14, Uh, but we have to visit this again uh, because Paul's not done writing on the subject, God is not done speaking on the subject, and so we're not done studying it, not yet. Uh, The problem exposed there in the church in Corinth was significant enough that the Apostle Paul spends at least another 20 verses on it, and we'll cover a large section today, Lord willing, uh, because there's a lot of stuff here that kind of just fits together nicely into one package. But last time we learned this, a couple of things. First of all, the gift of tongues was destined to become obsolete, and it did when the New Testament was completed. There was no more need for uh, the sign of tongues Uh, In fact, there are other purposes for the gift of tongues, which we might touch on later, which also had been exhausted by the time of the completion of the New Testament, even before that. Second, we learned that not all believers have the gift of tongues. That's at the end of chapter 12. 
and so even when it was available in the early church, say there was a church of 100 people, not all 100 would have that particular gift. Maybe one or two, maybe three, who knows? But it wasn't common uh, to all of the members of the churches. Thirdly, we learned it's sinful to speak in tongues or to use any other spiritual gift if the purpose of that was to aggrandize oneself, to puff up the speaker. That was, is an invalid use of the spiritual gifts that God has given. And these abilities, including the ability in a foreign language, was to be used to build up the church and to honor God, build up the church and to honor the Lord. Nearly 2,000 years later, this how long ago this was written, we still are struggling with the same exact issues in the church. Why? I think it's because we don't listen. We as a community of people who name the name of Christ, largely or broadly speaking, the world is still racked with problems surrounding the gift of tongues. Get this, minimally, estimates say that 300 million people on the face of this globe believe that tongues are important and necessary today. And some have numbered that number as high as 500 million, a half a billion souls who have been taught incorrectly about this matter. And they are focused on the wrong things. Uh, It's often associated with the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's a false, false good news. It's not good news at all, entirely false. And so You have a major problem with this yet today. Some who name the name of Christ demand that you speak in gibberish to demonstrate that you are a saved person. People, because of that, then lose heart because they say, oh, I haven't gotten the gift, so I must not be where I'm supposed to be with God. People, others, ask God to give them that gift when, in fact, he will not. I can say that with 100, 1,000% confidence. You can ask God all you want for for that gift. It's not coming. It is simply not coming. Church services are in disarray. People speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of other uh, outlandish kinds of activities. Not accomplishing the teaching and preaching of God's holy word. Even miraculous, so-called miraculous gifts like healings and services done around the world. And all they are is just fake services. They are, there's no real healing there. If somebody went there with a real malady, they would say, well, you need to go to the hospital. That's exactly right. You need to trust the Lord, of course, but you need to go to the normal means that are provided by God. And so hopefully that's a motivation enough to say, okay, we need to be sharp on this because we are going to run into it. I know, I know many of you have as well run into this kind of charismatic tongues, prosperity gospel. Our brother just brings up another one, the oneness Pentecostals who don't believe in the Trinity. These are very serious errors that are all kind of conglomerated together under this heading of general Pentecostal or charismatic doctrine. And Paul is, has, you know, whether he foresaw that or not doesn't matter. He's given us enough material that it's as if he did foresee it and that knew that we were going to need some instruction on it. Now, breaking this passage from 6 to 25 down into segments was difficult for me, but I tried to do the best I could to help you as well. But there are two themes that are easy to spot as we read it. So let me start in 14.6. 
and read there. Follow along with me, if you will. I'm reading the New King James Version. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. That word foreigner, by the way, is the word barbaros or barbarian. The person who you can't understand sounds like a barbarian. That's just the literal translation of it. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And I put a division there between 12 and 13, a small section division. Verse 13, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? Here's what Paul says, you know, whatever all that is, this praying of tongues and all this, I'm going to pray with the spirit and with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit and also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice... Be babes or be children is what he means, but an understanding be mature. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophesying is for unbelievers. I'm sorry, prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Rightly so. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. All right, so we... we hopefully picked up two major themes there at least. Number one, understanding. Number one is understanding. This word or derivatives of it is used several times in the passage. In fact, eight times I think I counted. You have words like meaning, significance, intelligible, uh, thinking, or uh, fruitful mind or unfruitful mind or with the mind. Uh, it's a, a good emphasis or, or kind of center focus there in the text. Uh, distinction and significance convey the same idea, although they don't use the word understand or meaning. It's obvious that our emphasis then from the first five verses has continued on. Remember, we said from verse 2, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. And so I began to kind of 
elucidate this whole matter of understanding last week in our, in our message and talked about the understanding from the perspective of the speaker. You know, what do I do to, to help your understanding? And then understanding from the perspective of the hearer that, you know, you have to be uh, born again to understand the Word of God. You have to be living in a, a life of righteousness because if you're hiding sin in your heart, you're going to impede your growth and understanding of the truth of God and, and those sorts of things. So the larger point that we're trying to get at with this theme of understanding is that cognition is critical in the Christian system of thought. Many people think, oh, you just kind of make a leap into the dark and you just believe God and he, he kind of covers the, the gap from where you are to where he is. That is not accurate. Christian theology is for those who think and it is very deep. And it is, as many humans recognized in, in bygone generations, theology is the queen of the sciences. You might think, oh, well, you know, science, uh, uh, mathematical sciences or uh, astrophysics or something, that's the, that's the greatest. No, because God made all those things. They are subordinate to him. Theology is the queen, the real queen of the sciences. Now, real understanding comes along though with things like consistency and logic and truth, without which your message is muddy and clear. So real cognition has to come along with things like consistency. You know, we don't want to be inconsistent. Uh, We want to be clear, and we'll hopefully work in that direction and understanding this morning. Now remember, uh, well, I already mentioned verse 2 and understanding that whole theme. Because of the language barrier, the The person was not able to be understood. But with prophecy, that gift of proclamation or teaching or preaching, the Bible uh, encourages us with these words, remember from verse 3 of the same chapter, we're in edification, building up, exhortation, admonishing, and comforting, bringing comfort to people. That's what we're supposed to be doing in the church. So understanding is one of these themes. We'll get into it a little bit more in a moment. And then the second theme, obviously, is the word tongues. Tongues between verses 2 and 39 in this chapter, they're directly referenced at least 16 times, and really the whole chapter is about this gift of tongues, which as you know now is obsoleted. Now the word is used both singularly and plurally, so there's a mention of a tongue, and then other times it's tongues, plural. Uh, One uh, commentator makes a distinction between the singular and the plural saying that one is the gibberish, kind of false, ecstatic tongue, and the other, the plural, is real human languages. I don't make that distinction. I don't think it can be sustained on the basis of the text, although those two things did exist and were known about by the Corinthians and are known also by us, because charismatic tongues today are not human languages. They are false gibberish that uh, it means nothing. It's not a communicative language, and it's a sad thing that it's been substituted for what the real gift of tongues was in the Bible. Uh, and so because they're gibberish and cannot be understood, they're not, they really can't be of concern here to the Apostle Paul because he's saying if he can't understand it, you throw it out the window. Okay? It's gone. It's, it's not, it just doesn't fit. It's not on the table in this discussion. It's out. Okay, it's not a thing in the Christian church. 
All right, so we have the imperative of understanding. So tongues, real human languages, whether singular or plural. Verses 6 to 12 now, if we focus there, the imperative of understanding. Verse 6, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? The idea is nothing, nothing. Even with real human languages, you will not profit because the audience won't understand it. Remember I illustrated last week, take any one of the 50 languages or so that we're working with with Bibles International, you know, uh, in, from India or from Central African Republic or from Philippines or something like that, and you take any one of those languages and I present the Bible to you in that language, it would be meaningless to you, meaningless. And understanding is imperative. So no, if there's no understanding, there's no spiritual profit. Only if there's communication of divine revelation, only if there's proclamation of truth, only if there's teaching of Christian doctrine in your tongue, in your mother tongue, can there be real profit and understanding. Now, when we talk about profit, we're not talking about capitalism profit, okay? We're not talking about money. We're talking about attendance, uh, assistance, help, benefit, uh, accomplishment. In, in this context, it's related to spiritual matters. But let me, let me mention this to you because often we kind of think of life in, in terms of compartments. And we kind of have, you know, like uh, submarine uh, bulkhead doors between compartments. Okay, our Navy man here understands this. That's not how the Bible really is. When you receive a profit from the Word of God, it applies not just to the spiritual compartment with the bulkheads around it. It, refer, it applies to your whole life. The, this, the Bible is profitable for all things, for all things, uh, spiritual things. You know, Paul said exercise has some profit for this life, right? But, but uh, godliness is profitable for all things, both now and in the life which is to come. But the scriptures are that way. And so, when, when you, know, you, you help somebody, you encourage them, you provide them wisdom, guidance, or whatever, you know, and they say, you know, that helps me. That, that profits me. That's what this profit is about. And it really helps our, our whole lives. If you think about it, every element of your life is touched by your Christian belief. You say, how, how is that? Well, you have to think sometimes what you choose to do what you choose to think about, what you choose to, to watch, what you, what you say, how you go about your conduct. You know, do you go about down or up? Do you go along the way praying to God or complaining to God? Everything that you touch, all the things that you have are given to you by God. They were all created by God or the resources to make them or the people that took the resources and turned them into something that you have as far as material possessions. Everything Everything is touched by Christian theology, by Christian doctrine, by Christian truth. And this prophet touches that. Now, Paul gives a neat little illustration of musical instruments here in verses 7 and 8, trying to convey the idea that understanding is so critical. Now, I didn't, I didn't uh, remember to do this prep this morning, but just imagine with me this, what, what I had my boys help me with last night to help this illustration. I had David write a little program on the computer. He's in a computer science class now to uh, write out a random series of 
musical notes. And then I had John with his trumpet play them. Well, and he wanted to modify it a little bit to make it sound even worse. So, so he did that. And, he, and I recorded it. And I, I wish I could play the recording for you, but I don't have it set up just now yet. So he played that, you know, some, I don't know, 20 notes or something like that. And I put that first in the recording. And then I asked John to play Praise to the Lord on his trumpet. And just a few bars, you know, I'm just going to play through that. And you hear the, just the random noise of this, of this, you know, instrument. And then you hear the beautiful music just transition out of that. And you see side by side the comparison that Paul is making. If you, you know, if you just, you know, blow the trumpet or the, the flute or the clarinet or, or whatever, the tuba, and it's just making a, a racket, and it, there's no meaning to it, then who, who's going to pay attention to it? You know, um, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who's going to prepare for the battle? And, you know, if you, don't, if you play the wrong tune at the wrong time, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Or if you play no tune at any time, it makes the big difference. So Paul is saying even inanimate things are made by their user to communicate something. Often with music, there's the, the nice arrangement of the notes, the rhythm, the melody, and, and then words that go along with the song that you can think as you're, as you're hearing the song. And so... Random notes don't convey anything, but beautiful music does communicate truth. And so the application is given in verse number 9. So likewise, you, unless you utter by the, word, uh, by the tongue words that are easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. It's kind of like that example of you know, taking a, a, a room full of monkeys at uh, keyboards and having them randomly, you know, type out words and, and, you know, boy, I hope they come out with something meaningful. Never in a million years will they come out with anything that has any kind of meaning to it at all, much less war and peace or something like that or even the Gettysburg Address or something. Never. There's no meaning there. There's no intelligence to put in to the meaning. And so, the scripture says, just like the inanimate musical instrument, you have to use, you have to put your brain to use your tongue in a way that communicates meaning and communicates profit to those that you are ministering to. So we have to use our brain to make an orderly arrangement of musical notes, and so we do the same with an orderly arrangement of vocal notes to make words that we can understand one with another. Now, languages, verses 10 and 11, are, are like instruments in that there are many different ones. Look at 11, uh, or, well, let's see, 10. There are, many, there, it, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world. You know, how many languages are there? Over 5,000? It's, it's amazing variety. I don't even know the, the real number. And the sad thing is, how many languages have a, the full Bible? Not too many, not too many. Um, but you think about the number of different musical instruments there are, hundreds perhaps, maybe thousands, I don't know. But they all must be used to communicate meaning. Otherwise, you're going to sound like a barbarian to the audience. Again, that's the literal translation of that word. So look at verse number 12 then as we kind of draw this little subsection of the imperatival nature of understanding to an, a close. 
Paul says, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So I close with this. Don't be like a stranger. Don't be like a barbarian. Speak so that the church can be edified and it can grow. And since these believers were zealous for good gifts, weren't they? But they had to change their focus. Not the gift so much, the inward flow of the thing, but the outward flow of it, the benefit, the profit that was given to others in, uh, in the church. Don't be a, a barbarian. Don't be a stranger to your people. Now, understanding like this is critical for all aspects of the ministry. Critical for all aspects of the ministry. Look at verses 13 to 19. Let, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, this is for the day in which Paul wrote. Tongues were current then. Uh, we don't have them now, so we can't, do, you know, can't kind of co-opt this verse for ourselves. Uh, but he says in verse 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, I want you to notice this. He says spirit. Does your Bible have that uppercase or lowercase? Lowercase, that's the human spirit that the translators here are telling you they believe this is the human spirit, and I agree with that. I think it is the human spirit. Now, saying that, though, doesn't uh, you know just ditch the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. He's still in our lives, isn't he? Uh, he has to be if we're believers. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Okay, Romans 8 tells us that. So the Spirit of God has to be in here as well, but this is specifically talking about the human spirit. But you can't say, well, I'm speaking in my spirit, or, or some people say, I'm speaking in the spirit. Nobody understands me, but I'm speaking in the spirit, and that's kind of like the, the get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't have to have understanding. You can have all kinds of, of nonsense. You can have ecstatic gibberish. You can have whatever. And as long as it's, you know, because God told me to do it, then it must be good enough. And nobody can, you know, supposedly question that. I'm here to tell you that's all nonsense, okay? People can say they're praying in the Spirit all they want. It's just gibberish. It's meaningless. There's no Holy Spirit there. There's a human spirit there. There's a human spirit that's gotten overly emotionally excited, perhaps, deceived, perhaps, falsely taught, perhaps, but... Don't blame that on the Holy Spirit. If you're not understanding, here's the, here's the thing. If you're not understanding, there is no Holy Spirit there. Okay, Let's make sure we clearly understand that truth. Now, look at 16 and 17. So if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? Now, I've sometimes had this experience when I'm in a context in South America and they're praying along in Spanish, I mean, at a, a thousand miles an hour. And I can pick up a certain percentage of the words, but then when they, they, they speak so quickly, all the words run together and it's like one huge word, you know, you, you just lose sight of the meaning of it. And I'm sure we do that to them too. We talk too fast in English and it all kind of runs together, right? But Sometimes I'm able to pick up, you know, the gist of the prayer, 
And I feel very comfortable to say amen to that prayer. Other times I just have to say, well, I don't know what that was, but I'll just let that go by. (laughs) Somebody else can say amen for us on that one. Um, So uh, the, the idea of speaking, of saying amen to this stuff you don't know the meaning of, you can't do that. So that's what Paul's saying. Somebody comes in, and he's going to use this idea, again, of somebody coming into the midst of the church and try to help us understand the importance of that. We have to understand the impact that the use of our spiritual gifts has on other people, even outsiders, outsiders in the church. Now, Paul says, and by the way, I said that this is understanding has to be key for all aspects of the ministry. Look back at verse 15. What's the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. So in all aspects of ministry, whether it's prayer, whether it's singing, obviously whether it's preaching, whatever it is, there has to be understanding in them. Every element of ministry. Now, Paul says in 18, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Evidently, Paul was quite a gifted individual, and he knew several languages, which makes good sense because he preached uh, you know, in, in Jerusalem and Antioch and in Syria and then in, in Antioch of Pisidia and uh, the Galatians and all these different places, then up into Macedonia. I mean, I don't know how many languages he would have had to know to, know to, do, to accomplish that, but a number of them. Um, you know, he knew Greek, uh, probably had some grasp on the Latin, um, Hebrew, of course, and then the local languages that he could express the gospel in. But he, he spoke in tongues more than them all. Yet, in the church... You know, he had used those when he was out about and, you know, on the streets and in the marketplaces trying to reach people for Christ. But in the church, I'd rather speak five words with understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody knows. Think of that, 10,000 divided by five. What is that ratio? He's really saying that understanding is so important, you might as well just go home if you don't have it. Okay, so he preferred to speak in plain language in the church, so it was easily, easily understood. No showing off. Now, tongues, verses 20 to 25, were for unbelievers. This is what makes it so out of place to have them in the church. Let me demonstrate that to you. First of all, Paul says in verse 20, Brothers, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. This sounds like just a, almost a proverb, doesn't it? It's off, off to the side. What he's saying is I want you guys to kind of level up Uh, your understanding here. Be mature in this area. Don't be silly. Don't be children about this. But the general principle is quite interesting. Do not be children in your understanding. In other words, be mature. Be like adults, okay? You get it. But when it comes to like evil things, malice, uh, you know, planning evil, be like children. Be innocent. Don't be doing that sort of thing, okay? You're smart, but you're not evil. Harmless is a good word to say. Harmless as doves. That's how we should be. So that's what he means by verse 20. And then he says, here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to understand. In Isaiah 28, 
The Bible says, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me. The context is, God is saying to the Israelites, you've been disobedient. I'm going to send another nation to you. And they will be like barbarians to you. But they're going to rule over you. I'm going to speak to them with other languages. The Assyrians, of course, to the north. The Babylonians for the south took over that kingdom of Jerusalem, of Judah. And that's what God's saying. So what is he saying tongues were for? Were they a blessing to the people of Israel? (laughs) They were a judgment on the people of Israel. So tongues were a sign, verse 22, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Because they don't understand, right? You can't understand what these foreigners are saying to you, and it's all scary because they come in and they're taking you away to a faraway land, and and thousands of you will be slaughtered. You have no idea what's going to happen when this terrible judgment occurs. And this should be a very shocking truth who've been emphasizing tongues in the church. Paul's saying it's not for the church. So it's entirely upside down to have an emphasis on tongues in the church. You see the point of that? Entirely wrong-headed. But proclamation, preaching and teaching, there's a place for that in the church. So tongues are a sign of not blessing, but rather of judgment. Now let's go ahead and look again at 23. In the chapter here, 1423, therefore, if the whole church comes together and all speak with tongues and there comes somebody in who is uninformed or an unbeliever, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Yep, they will. They will think you people are nuts. You're crazy. And if, I mean, they hear everybody, blah, 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 you know, what? What's going on in this place? It makes no sense at all. I'd rather go to university where I can hear a professor talk some sense, or so-called sense, right? Uh, Yeah, but I can understand what he's saying at least. Well, so the the outsider comes in. And there are, I want to just emphasize, there are two, two kinds of people. There are those that are believers and those that are not. Those who are unbelievers can be divided into two kind of groups. Paul calls them either uninformed or those without faith. So those, and they're, they're really part of the same unbelieving group, but you can kind of imagine somebody comes in who really just rejects the gospel and they're a mocker and they hear all this blah, blah, blah in the church and they say, I was right. I know there's nothing here for me, profitless, stupid stuff, I'm leaving. Or somebody could come in who is really uninformed. They know nothing about Christianity. They walk into the church and they say, oh, this is kind of strange. What's going on here? And they can't understand it. Um, so those two kinds of people may, uh, you, know, you may encounter, we may encounter, and we need to be having a church service that's orderly, sensible, understandable, uh, honoring to God so that, that that itself can draw people to a knowledge of the Lord. Of those that aren't saved, God is calling some of them to himself. When I say calling, we, I first mean inviting. How does, how does God invite? He invites by the proclamation of the good news. Jesus Christ died for sinners. And by the way, you are one, so you kind of fit the mold. And uh, he died for your sins and rose again from the dead. And 
all of that. That's a general call to salvation. But we can go, we hope it will go one step further, and that is the second notion of calling. And that is not just inviting, but actually God bringing a person to saving faith. That's effective calling or this second kind of uh, or use of the word call. According to Matthew 22, 14, the Bible says, many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? That means using the calling language, many are called by way of invitation, but few are called by way of regeneration. Okay, So the choosing is like the second um, definition of the word calling. So there's a smaller number of people who are chosen in the sense of being saved than there are invited in the sense of being proclaimed to about the gospel. Now, how do you know if you're called? That question I've gotten that many times over the years. How do you know if you're called to the gospel? Well, whenever you hear the gospel, you're called in the first sense. And if you believe the gospel, then you can say, I was called in the second sense. Okay? And you don't have to understand that God is the one that worked in you and that salvation is of the Lord in the sense that he drew and he convicted and he gave you the gift of repentant faith and all. You don't have to understand all that. All you have to understand is, I heard and I believed and I will be, I am called of God. Now, later on, you'll figure more of this out and understand it better. But we're never told to find out if we're called before we believe. You know, don't sit there and say, well, I've got to figure out if I'm on God's elect list. I've got to figure out if I'm called before I can decide if I'm going to actually believe. That's all nonsense. It's, a, it's, a, it's an excuse. We are told that we are sinners. Got it? Good. We're, we need to be saved. Jesus died for our sins. We're told that he rose again from the dead so that we could be justified. And we're told we must believe. We obey God by believing in Christ. Leave the calling to the caller, God. Okay, don't worry about the calling. You think about what you're supposed to think about. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Leave the calling to God. Now, so uh, where are we at here? Tongues, people coming into the church. They, they listen. They say, hey, these people are out of their mind. But if you prophesy... If you proclaim the truth in the church and an uninformed or unbelieving person comes in, then he's convicted and convinced he has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Now, um, you might say, well, is that, is that a guarantee? Well, no, it's not a guarantee. But I can tell you what is a guarantee. If you're saying stuff that they don't understand, they will not understand, and they will not be convicted, and they will think it's silliness, and they will leave and have no change in their hearts or minds. Now, you might sense an inconsistency in what I've said here, because we've said tongues are for unbelievers. So why are we not speaking to unbelievers in tongues? Well, A, because if if they don't speak that language, then it's useless. Speak to them in English here in our context, or Spanish if you're in a Spanish-speaking context, or whatever. That's number one. But number two... The idea of tongues being for unbelievers is not so much that tongues are for their benefit, although Paul could use them to preach the gospel. That's a benefit. But the idea in the Bible is actually tongues from Isaiah 28 
are a sign of judgment upon recalcitrant unbelievers whom God is judging, and it's not for their advantage that these tongues come. It's for their disadvantage. You, you, you with me on there? And what happens when there's a tongue is there's a, a hiding of meaning. There's a concealing of, of meaning. And the big picture, the scriptures teach us that in Acts chapter 2, the church was born. What happened in Acts chapter 2 along with the church being born was that there was a gift of tongues that first came into the church. And God was thus saying to the nation of Israel, I am turning away from focusing on the nation of Israel, and our focus now in the church age is on the nations of all the different languages in the world. Come back to you in a little while, but not now. So tongues actually were a sign of judgment to the nation of Israel. And that purpose of tongues has been exhausted because it's clear now God's turned away and he's turned to the people of the Gentiles. Remember, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. They're of the Gentile fold, and I've got to bring them in too. And we'll turn back and we'll deal with these folks. All Israel will be saved, Romans 11 says. But just imagine this if you would. Paul also says in Romans 11, I think it's in verse number 15. He says, their downfall led to riches for the Gentiles. So this tongues thing is connected to how God turned away from them, turned to the other language groups of the world and said to them, we're done. But their downfall became riches, the gospel for the rest of the world. What a blessing that is. Now, let me finish the exposition, go to a couple points of application There are detailed in the notes. We're running out of time, but I'm going to give them to you quickly. Number one, application from this emphasis on understanding is this, scripture memory. Should we we memorize without understanding or should we understand without memorizing? Should we memorize without understanding? In other words, wrote, or should we understand without memorizing? Now, really, both would be better, understand and memorize. I'm not trying to pit... Our, our, our minds against memory work. But understanding of scriptural truth is so important we cannot sacrifice it. When you're teaching your kids Bible verses, you have to teach them the understanding, right? Do not just make them memorize the verse. You know, Just memorize it. No, understand it. And if you can't explain it to them, your children, so that they can understand some at least base level, You need to go into a little corner with your Bible and your notebook and your pencil, and you need to figure it out. Isn't that right? Yeah, we need to be able to understand so we can convey that understanding to our children, whether it's at our homes or in our classrooms here in the church. Um, We have to do that homework to be able to do that. In fact, I think when the Bible says hiding or speaks of hiding God's word in your heart, I think it means understanding God's word. It doesn't just mean rote memorizing and then regurgitating. Okay? You do that in your, you know, perhaps your least favorite high school and college classes. You just get it over with. You just pack it in the day before, the night before, you spit it out on the test. Two months later, you can't even do the kind of problems or the whatever it was, you know, remember what you were supposed to know. Okay, so this, this endeavor of understanding is, is in, it's like in school. It's more than memorizing formulas. It's understanding the formulas. It's, it's being able to take them and 
morph them and use them in different circumstances and all that stuff. You've got to be able to take the Bible and use it in a different circumstance. Use it and apply it in an area of life. So you have to understand it. Secondly, second application, listening to sermons. You might not understand everything, and that's okay. But work at understanding as much as you can. Work at understanding. Sit down, ponder, really pray, look at your Bible. Don't give up. But don't be satisfied if you don't understand. The Bible tells us to pursue wisdom. Pursue it. Don't let it go. You will get a great reward from pursuing wisdom. Thirdly, an understanding needs to be, communica- needs to be a part of our communication. Clear, direct speech is a Christian virtue. To couch your language, you know what that means, right? To kind of put it in a certain way. Not too, you know, kind of obfuscated a little bit. Don't make it too, you know, too clear. Might be too offensive that way or something. If you're not able to convey to your audience the clear thoughts and you're leaving them confused, then it shows a problem in your grasp of this notion of understanding. And also, I might say, you might not be thinking clearly yourself about the matter. I've had numerous occasions where somebody says something to me and I know exactly what's going on. Their communication is a little obfuscated, perhaps purposely, or perhaps they just don't, they're unconscious about it. And so what I do is I, then I repeat what they've said, but I say it in direct terms. So you're saying, and they're like, oh, that's what I'm saying. Putting it that way doesn't make me sound so, um, I don't know, so good or something, whatever it is. You know, I just, uh-oh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, Pastor. I, maybe I need to think about that. Uh, so the person didn't realize themselves what they were saying. And that, and that can be a problem, unclear thinking, unclear, no understanding. And we talked about the Bible translation uh, business already. Let me mention that again. Um, you know, with Bibles International, we're working on, this, on these translations of the Bible, doing digital production. But you ask, why, why do you do that? Especially this, if you hear, oh, these people that speak the Saracaba language, uh, you know, the Saracaba de May language, say, well, but they also know French. So why don't we just have church in French? Well, that's a legitimate question. But if you know their facility in French is at 75%, is 75% of this good enough? No. We want them to get all of it. And so if they can understand it and get it in their own language that they've grown up in, and the light bulb can click on, wow, that makes a huge difference in their life. Can you imagine only having 75% of the Bible? Or 80 or even 90? It's not sufficient. 50? Yeah. No, it's not good enough. So Bible translation, we have to have understanding. And then finally, in worship. Whether it's in preaching or the songs or in prayer, if you don't understand something, you need to, as quickly as possible, get to the point of understanding. Don't give up until you do. Ask questions until you do. Work until you do. Think until you do. Pray and ask God to help you until you understand. But don't just make it a, in a, an empty ritual. And, and, and you know, church services and other languages, forget it, okay? We don't do Latin here, right? Our brother knows about that. Sad state of affairs. So hopefully, you know, churches are all doing the, the services in the, quote, vernacular. That's what we need. 
Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word, to be able to communicate it so it's understood, to be able to hear it in an understanding way, and these other applications that we've looked at. Lord, we understand that tongues just aren't going to cut it because they aren't associated with that understanding. In fact, they're a sign of judgment. And so we ask, Lord, you'd help us. Watch over us as we sing and then as we depart from here. May we just serve you well and honorably in Jesus' name. Amen.